Hello, everybody, and welcome to Broadcasting in Black and White, episode number three. I am Joe Messiri, as always. And for those of you who maybe haven't heard us before, just a little background on why Broadcasting in Black and White was created in the first place. My partner, Kenton Young, and I, who you'll hear from in just a little bit as we start the podcast, wanted to try and stay ahead of the curve in the industry at a time when it's really somewhat unpredictable. Uh, And we're doing that by talking to people who are pushing the broadcasting envelope, be it reporters, photographers, producers, actors, directors, you name it. We're trying to get those people who are on the cutting edge. And with that, today our guest on the podcast is Jeff Pania. Jeff is the creative director for New Buzz TV. They are an over-the-top station and creative agency that does everything you can imagine from show production, commercial production, and Jeff is one of the first full-time members of that team. He has a very extensive resume. I'll read you just a little bit of it here from his website. He is an Emmy Award-winning and Promax Award-winning director. He has been nominated for a total of 13 Emmy Awards and won six Promax Gold Awards. He was awarded the Ron Scalera Rocket Award, which is given to any individual with two years or less experience in the industry who is doing outstanding work. Jeff has also written and produced three short films, Numbers on a Napkin, a short documentary, also another one, Numbers on a Napkin was the first one. He also produced a short documentary titled The First 36 Hours, an inside look at Hurricane Sandy. And he was also awarded the Best Narrative Short Film at the 2013 Woodstock Film Festival for The Earth, The Way I Left It. So definitely extremely talented, extremely accomplished, and he is only 27 years old. Now, in the podcast, we talked to Jeff about growing up bilingual and how that impacted his storytelling. We also talk about directing his first film at seven years old and the impact that Jurassic Park has had on both of us uh, growing up. We're both very big fans. And we talk about lying to get a job. Very interesting there. Um, Without any further ado, here is Broadcasting in Black and White and our sit-down with Jeff Padilla. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hey everybody and welcome to Broadcasting in Black and White. As always, I am Joe Masiri here with my partner and co-host Kenton Young. What's going on, Kenton? Yo, yo, yo. That's his classic. That's becoming his tagline. We'll have t-shirts out with that soon. Let's do it. As you know, over here we try and break down some cool things going on in broadcasting by talking to people who are doing those cool things. And today on the line with us, we have Jeff Pania with NBTV. Jeff, how's it going today, man? Hey guys, how are you? Doing fantastic. On. Now I understand that you're uh, you're outside here. There may be uh, some animal noises in the background. What's going on there? Yeah, sorry. I'm actually walking my dog right now. No worries. Full disclosure. So, we just want... I'm, I'm multitasking. I, I understand. When you're as busy as you are and hustling as hard as you are, you got to make time for everything in your <laughs> life. There, so we get it. Trust us. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time out and multitasking for us today. I got to tell you that Kenton and I are both singing dollars, dollars here because we were watching your, uh, we were watching your reel before, and dollars is what I need. Dollars is what I need. So, Jeff, how how would you describe what you're doing right now for NBTV, and exactly what is NBTV? Uh, so, uh, NBTV Studios is uh, a production company. They've been around for about seven years. Um, they've done things from music videos to feature films to national commercials, web series, branded content. Uh, I mean, anything that's production related, they've touched live events. Um, and I'm their creative director right now. So I think we have two titles. One is creative director and for, you know, whenever we're doing agency facing stuff. And then the other is a director in residence. So that's so pretty much I oversee everything, everything that co- comes out of the production company. I make sure my stamp is on it. I make sure that it's the way I would want it to be sent out. So nothing goes out without me saying, yeah, that looks good. That's great. So it all filters through. And I also pretty much direct um, 
and write everything as much as I can when we're doing it. Sometimes it gets too busy, so you know we'll have multiple directors on multiple jobs, but um, that's pretty much overall. It's just doing everything. Just a little light work, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how'd you get involved with NBTV? So um, about two years ago, I was freelancing full-time, and I got a call from a producer who was doing a job there. It was for Verizon. And they just needed a, a freelance uh, director who could do an industrial. So the production company was MBTV Studios. I did this piece. It was for uh, Verizon. They were going to build their new uh, retail store. So they did. it was just a typical industrial, two talking head interview. That was it. Uh, so I wanted to kind of use, take advantage of the fact that, well, this is kind of a high-end client. So uh, wh- how, what's a different approach? What's a different way to do an industrial versus just talking head, stock music, two-minute edit, um, and so, you know, we did this nice little piece that really looked amazing. I mean, you know, we had a steady cam floating the entire time. We, um, I was able to bring every single person I've ever worked with to work on this project. We shot it in Philadelphia, and I edited it myself, and it just, it turned out really great. The client really liked it, and MUTV really liked it, so um, I, got, I got called back to do another one, okay. and then the next one that I did was uh, for Nikon. And then I got called back to do another one where Nikon specifically asked for me, and and then it just kept going. And so then at one point, it was just kind of like, hey, would you be willing to do this full time with us? And I said, well, let's let's talk. And we talked. And uh, it's been a year now, so I've been with them for a year. That's awesome. We were watching that Verizon spot before too, and and some of the commercials also. And the way I describe it is the commercials that you guys have created are the kind that you want to watch during the Super Bowl. They are content in itself. Is that your goal? What goes through your mind when you're creating some of these? Um, really, it's all about like visual visual style. So um, one of the things that I've noticed that uh, the last commercial we were filming, uh, one guy came to us, one of the grips came to us uh, on set because I actually co-directed that with my producing partner, Matt Porvisay. And he, uh, this grip approached us and he said, you know, you guys, all you guys do is stuff with no dialogue and I didn't really think about it until I went back and looked at my body of work and I kept seeing oh yeah that's right there's no dialogue in that there's no dialogue in that it's all visual so I think I've just I become very attracted to visual storytelling you know whenever you have something that you can just kind of put on mute and just watch and get it I think I just kind of became a person who kind of writes like that thinks like that executes it that way who just I don't think I really meant to, for it to be like that. It just is. And, you know, it's just kind of one of those things. It's, it's, that's the kind of stuff I like to watch. Mm. Was there an inspiration for that for you? Um, you know, it's one of those things. Uh, I always tell this. So I come from a uh, you know, bilingual family. So my family is originally from Colombia. So half my family speaks Spanish, um, and half of them don't speak English at all. So whenever I'm making these projects, I always kind of keep that in my mind where, you know, when I was a little kid growing up and I'd go to the movies with my grandfather, I remember specifically going to see The Lost World Jurassic Park. And the whole movie, I had to kind of whisper in his ear to translate. And it really ruined the movie for me because I didn't want to do that. So I had to go back and rewatch it again by myself. Um, And that's kind of what I think about whenever I'm doing like my short films, for example, is can this be something that I can sit in the living room with my grandparents? and have them watch it, and they can still understand it, even though they don't speak the same language that I do. Mm. And I think that's kind of what does it for me whenever I'm doing these things. Now, music plays a big role in a lot of your pieces, too. Is, is, do you feel that music transcends language? Yes. So that's another thing that um, I've also been, people have commented on, is like, anytime I do like a piece, I'll get like emails from people, hey, what's that song? Or hey, what's the name of that group? Um, I try to, like, even though the last documentary that I was a writer on, I was uh, also kind of the music supervisor without meaning to be. And all my projects, I always want to make it, like, it's just something that's got to resonate. You know, the idea is to always make something memorable. Always make something memorable. Something that sticks with you. Something that can inspire somebody else. I mean, I have my set of commercials that I watch. I'm like, man, that was awesome. And I don't know why, but I think it was just because the visuals and the music just kind of came together, uh, you know, perfectly. And that's what I've noticed also with my body of work, I mean, I didn't really pay too much attention to it early on. Now that I've been doing this for five years, which, you know, you can accumulate a lot of work in five years. And then when you look back on it, you realize, oh, yeah, okay, I see the music is there. The visual is there. 
you know, and you forget because you're just constantly just doing the next thing. You forget to look back and, you know, take pride in some of, you know, the style that you end up, you know, getting after a couple of years. Jeff, I'm sorry. Ahead, Jeff, Kevin. I have a question. Is there a director out there that inspired you? That still inspired you? Uh, that may still inspire you until this day? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, one of, one of the greatest visual directors of all time, I think, is Federico Fellini. I mean, Eight and a Half is one of the movies that it's like, some of the visuals, it's just, it's just visual storytelling, man. It's, it's really great. I mean, Alfred Hitchcock did it too, but his stuff was more suspense-driven. Um, really, it, Fellini, man, is just like, his, his stuff is just like what really always resonated with me. Because um, a lot of it was also artsy. It was like, well, I don't even know what the hell this is. Um, and I don't know. I thought that was always cool. And like, for as far as modern storytellers, um, Spike Jones is one of those dudes who... If you ever look at his body of work, his music videos, they're all so crazy. And the things that he does are less visual effects driven and more practically driven. So that means it's like, you know, he does everything in camera. So if there's like a visual trick that's being done, it's like either the camera's being flipped around, something is being built from scratch, you know, inside the camera. I really, really admire that. Uh, another modern director that does that is Michelle Gondry. I mean, all his movies, you know, do that, you know, where there's just all these practical effects that you wonder, wait, how do they do that? And I think that's something like also in cinema that's kind of lost now, you know, like um, a perfect example is, you know, you look at Jurassic Park and Jurassic World. Jurassic Park was mm -hmm. amazing because there were real life puppets on set. And what it does is whenever you're actually watching the film, you are frightened because what you're seeing is something that's real. And, you know, this new one is completely animated. And yeah, we, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should, you know, and so the, the realism gets lost. And when you do things in camera, practically like that, you keep things real. Uh, your storytelling is much better and it's much stronger when you do that. You know, so that's why I admire those 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 modern modern day filmmakers. You keep mentioning the Jurassic Park series. There was that uh, influential on your decision to get into this. Yeah, yeah, that was the first movie I ever saw in the movie theater. All right, listen to this. I have to share this story with you. Then <laughs> at my wedding, my wife and I. Uh, well, I walked down first with my groomsmen. And I told my wife that I wanted to walk out to the theme song from Jurassic Park. We had a uh, cello and a violinist. I am obsessed with the original Jurassic Park movie. And Dude, that's awesome. So we're going out there. She said, no, no, no. You know, it's too much. We're not going to do it. On the day of the wedding, she surprised me. I didn't even realize as I was walking down, the guy who married us is a good friend of ours. And I was humming the song along. The da, 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 <laughs> because I'm such a big fan of the movie. So I, I totally get it. Looking back on it, you mentioned the the realism that they managed to bring to that uh, initial uh, movie. Anything else about that that stood out to you that's influenced you today? Yeah, man, it's it's the magic. It's the magic. It's the fact that you were able to go in there as a little kid and actually come out scared, and then you could actually come out wanting to be a dinosaur. You know, like <laughs> because you just because because you just saw a dinosaur on screen, and you know you look at a lot of films right now, and it's like, well, I didn't really see a dinosaur on screen. I saw a cartoon, uh, you know, and it was cool, but I don't remember it. You know, that's the stuff that was, you know, that's the magic of of filmmaking. Some people still do it. I mean, they're still like I think Chris Nolan as much as mainstream as he may be you know he's got that he's got that uh, like really really he's got that honed in i mean the things he does visually is like you know he, he takes that formula he doesn't he's not a fan of cgi he prefers to do things build things build sets, use miniatures and you know i admire him for that um as far as you know his storytelling ability you know that everyone has a different opinion on that but i think that's one of his strongest things that he has going for him can you tell us a little bit about your education? I understand you went to Full Sail uh, University. What's that like as a school? We, Kenton and I were looking up online. It, it looked like Universal Universal Studios, we said, with uh, one of the campus pictures they were showing there. How did that play a role well, on what you're doing now? Well, you know, the, the cool thing about Full Sail was it was a two-year school. Basically, they teach you four years, and they compress it into two. So you don't get any breaks. You don't get summer break. You don't get winter break. You're just there all the time. And, you know, your classes are about four hours apiece or sometimes even eight hours, and they can, the time slots of when you have classes could be 1 p.m., 5 p.m., 9 p.m., 1 a.m., 5 a.m., 9 a.m. That's always how it was. Wow. So sometimes you, you'd have a 1 a.m. class or 1 a.m. lab, and that was cool because it kind of let you get the feel of what it's like to be on set. So I, you know, I left that school with uh, probably about 20 to 40 hours of on-set experience before I even, you know, got on a real set, and that, that I think was key. At the same time, you know, 
It's one of those schools where you start off with about 200 people, and by the time you graduate, only 15 or 30 are left. Because it's that intense, wow. and it's one of those things where if, you're, if you don't have passion in it, then, then it's, it's not for you. Right. You know, because it's not, you're, it's, it's a trade school is what it really is. And, you know, the Universal Studios thing, it was actually Universal Studios helped design the back lot for the school. Oh, wow. So, you know, we had access, we had access to, you know, fake, a fake New Orleans set or a fake gas station. Uh, I also got to shoot on 35-millimeter film and 60-millimeter film. So I really got to learn the discipline of what it's like to shoot on that medium, and which was really helpful because the last feature film that I just got done uh, post-producing was shot on 35-millimeter film. You know, so it was really nice to have that kind of experience. How old were you when you first directed, or when you directed your first film, and how did you feel after seeing it completed? Uh, wait, can you repeat the second part of that? And how did you feel after you saw it completed? Well, I like like real film or like something that I because I mean I was uh, seven when I did my first like actual piece of narrative. Seven. Um, I was seven. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, my dad had just you know VHS cameras were like the thing. Those uh, high A cameras, like yeah, back right. then, especially Absolutely. being especially being you know my father being an immigrant, it was like man, we got to get this camera, we got to film everything, and we got to send it back to the family. Home videos, they right? See what I'm, yeah, yeah. They, they, it was like, hey, look, guys, this is America. This is what a car wash looks like. This is what a vending machine <laughs> wow. looks like. I swear, I, and I still have these videos. You do. And so I remember. Oh yeah, I have I have like a box full of like forty fifty videos from all that. And um, so whenever we go and travel, me and my dad would travel once a year, and we went to London, and I asked, can I just handle the camera? I just want to film it. And so I handled the camera, and then I became obsessed with always having my hands on the camera. So that New Year, uh, I forget what year it was, but I was seven, uh, all the family was over at uh, my parents' house. So we were up till 3 in the morning, and so I rounded up all the kids, and I said, guys, we're going to make a movie. And we used the opening titles of GTA 2, or the video game that was on PlayStation 1. Yeah. We used that as the intro to our movie, and we just shot. Basically, it was a bunch of chase sequences. And at the time, you know, I wanted to have opening credits and closing credits and really wanted to make it feel Hollywood. <laughs> um, so, but, but there, I didn't know how to do that kind of stuff. So I, but I knew how to use PowerPoint, right? So I got on my dad's computer. I made a PowerPoint presentation uh, because I knew how to animate like credits on a PowerPoint presentation. And then I actually filmed the computer screen nice. as opening credits. And then that was pretty much my first thing. And then I remember taking it to, to school and showing everybody. Um, I had like all the kids gather around and I showed them on a the little screen. And I still have that little short film too. Is that online? No, that'll never be online. <laughs> no, oh, man. No, nah, no, nah, no way. Not even for us. <laughs> No, the radio. No, I know, right? Yeah, I guess not. <laughs> what? What? Kenton said, "Not even for us." <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I have to dig. I have to dig for it, and like maybe know, we'll work something out. We'll work, maybe we can work something out. It's a process, man. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to open up the nostalgia box. You know? <laughs> I understand. I understand. All right, so you you were starting out on the the VHS, uh, the high eights there. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned shooting thirty five millimeter. You use, it seems like, a lot of different cameras here in the work that you do. Do you have a favorite, and how difficult is it to work with so many different cameras? Uh, no, I really don't have a favorite. I mean, look, every, every project is, you know, calls for something different. It's just a tool. Uh, you know, I'm fortunate enough that, you know, one of my best friends is Justin Simpson, who, you know, we met in uh, college, and we were actually roommates both in Orlando, Florida, and in New York. And he's been my DP on mostly... Like every single project that I've done in the, in the recent years, he's been my DP, and you know we collaborate so well. And he's he's such a talent himself. I mean, he from the moment we started working together to now, he's grown so much. And he's just really good visually, and you know normally that allows me to kind of take a step back and let him make those types of decisions and let him understand. You know, this lens will be better. This camera's better for this. You know, not 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 one camera is better than any other camera. Uh, it just depends on what you're shooting, what you're doing it for, and what you're trying to achieve. Interesting. Now, you and Kenton actually worked on a couple projects together. Yes. Yeah. I was bunch. privileged to work with Mr. Pinilla. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> uh, we, we did some great stuff, man. Uh, Run DMC. Well, DMC from Run DMC. Um, one of my most memorable moments was with Sandy. Superstorm Sandy. You yeah. remember that, Jeff? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was three years ago already. Yeah, I know. Seriously. Um, when we want to explain to the people, you know, what went through your mind when you came out there with us, with myself and Arthur Chien and James Sealinger? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so, like, that project, I mean, you know, I, I've told this story, like, so many times, man, but it's like it changes each time. Because as the years go by, you look back on it a little differently. But that was, you know, um, as Kenton knows, you know, the year prior, we were trying to go, uh, Hurricane Irene was about to hit. And it was, you know, they, the predictions were that it was going to be the biggest storm ever. And so I said to Kenton, hey, man, can I just tag along with you? Let me just ride in the news end with you. I'd like to take the camera. And so we went out, and it was pouring. It was pouring, pouring, pouring. And the camera just, like, died on me 20 minutes in. So I was forced to just sit in this news truck for uh, 24 hours. My phone got fried, didn't work anymore. I had to get a new phone, and I was soaking wet, and it was the most miserable experience I ever had. So and you a said, year let's later, do it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So a year later, it was going to happen again. And I said, hey, man, do you mind? I'll, I'll do things right this time. So I'm with you. I'll, I'll uh, grab a, you know, a 7D. I'll take it with me. I'll take some GoPros, too, just in case that dies. And, you know, I'll have everything in place. I even brought, you know, a trash bag and everything. I bought rain boots this time because I didn't do that the first time. You didn't. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I brought, I brought a, a cover for my phone and everything. And so I went out there with them. And, you know, I didn't know what it was going to be. To be honest, like, you know, the day before they told us at work, they said, you know, if you want to take the day off, take it off and stay at home. So Amazing Spider-Man 2 has just come out on Blu-ray. I kept thinking, well, maybe, maybe I'll just, maybe I'll just buy the movie, just have a day in, order some food. It'll be a nice day off. And I literally like was, uh, you know, juggling that decision up until 30 minutes when I decided to go ahead and just go. Because wow. I, I remember calling Kenton saying, "Hey, man, you really gonna do this? Uh, yeah, I don't think I'm gonna do it." And then I just decided to go. And then we, we you know, we, we were there. I mean, it was like 40 hours of just like. You know, I've never experienced anything like it. And I, I really think I, I got really, really lucky that I was there and was able to capture what I captured because, I don't know, it seemed like this is one of those few projects where this one really resonated with people. I mean, you know, I I put all this stuff together and I put it on Vimeo three days later. I mean, literally, I edited it in about 16 hours. All right, don't cut yourself but, short. While we were out well, I, there, you put the first 12 out. You put a documentary out. That he called. Oh, he yeah, labeled the true. first twelve hours. He did that in the back seat while we were still involved. While we were still in right the right, heat of yeah, it. Yeah, that's wow. true. That's wow. true. So I was yeah I was editing it in real time, and then as soon as I got home that night, I didn't sleep, um, and I just started editing because I, I thought like you know this is one of those things that it the, the timing has to be right. You know it, it's still, it's so relevant, and I pushed. I, I literally like the director's cut was what I pushed out to Vimeo. I just, you know, I, I had it done. I went into the offices. I showed it to my bosses. They're like, this is great. And I said, okay, so I'm just going to put it online. I put it online, and then I remember I was in the movie theater, and I started getting a bunch of messages, a bunch of emails. And everybody on Vimeo was commenting on it. I didn't know why. And that night it became a staff pick on Vimeo, so it was on the front page. Wow. And I was, I was just like, you know, I've never experienced that. It was really, really cool. And it seemed like it really struck a chord with people because of, it kind of showed a perspective that isn't really shown, which is what these people do for a living when it comes to, you know, reporting these, these, you know, these events in real time. And Jeff, let, know, me, let, you, me, talk- let me give a little bit of background to our, our listeners here. So this is during Hurricane Sandy, and you mentioned your difficulties during Hurricane Irene, but the difficulties were actually for the news crew this time around uh, with those yeah. floods. They were the ones who were having trouble with their cameras, the trucks, getting the signal out. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about what was going on around you actually in this uh, documentary that you're putting together? Well, what was really interesting to see is, yeah, all these things were happening – but, you know, the competency level of everybody that was working was amazing. I mean, because it wasn't necessarily a thing of like, oh, you know, this, this, this camera is a, a piece of junk or this truck's a piece of junk. It wasn't like that at all. It was like literally like water was flooding the, you know, the, the pipes and like the cars were not running. And it was just interesting to see, you know, Kenton and Arthur and James like kind of really like doing everything they could to make it happen just to get on air. And, you know, in the piece, one of the things that Kenton says which I think is one of the best sound bites that's in the piece is, you know, he said that a guy heard their reports out on the news, so he put his boots on and decided to leave his house. And that he wouldn't have done that had he not seen the report. And he basically, and I'm quoting you, Ken, you say, 
uh, you know, that's our job, man. That's what we have to do. We got to let people know so that they can protect themselves. Right. And that is really like, the, that's the through line of the entire piece is like, that is their job. That's what they do. So it was a privilege, man. It was a privilege to be able to capture that. And it was a project that was really, it wasn't necessarily about me. It wasn't about like, oh, look what I wrote. Look what I did. It was more like, look at these guys, you know? And, and you know, I was just able to put a camera up and, and show it. Was there something that you took away from either the, the first experience of that whole everything's broken, I wasn't prepared for this, that you still think about today? Um, I wouldn't say that I t- took anything. Like, you mean, like, what did I learn from the first time when I tried to go and, and things fell apart? Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say that I learned it. I think what it, what it was is, you know, I really kind of enjoy doing those in-the-moment kind of kinds of things. I remember my, my father calling me saying that I was an idiot for or even going. There's no, like, if I'm not getting paid to do it, why am I doing it? That wasn't the first uh, time. Was, Remember uh, the night we got, we got uh, Osama bin Laden? Oh, yeah, that was yeah. another night. Yeah. You know, my father <laughs> called me, you know, the, the night that, uh, you know, that uh, the president made the announcement that uh, the, the raid was a success and they got Osama bin Laden. The first thing I did was, like, I saw all, these, all the people, like, on the street in Times Square and, you know, down, downtown just celebrating. And the first thing I did was call Kenton and I said, hey, man, what are you doing right now? Where are you? can you come scoop me up? Can we get together? I'll grab the camera and we just go. And he, and his response was, yeah. And then my dad called me again saying, dude, you're an idiot. What are you doing? You're not getting paid to do this. And I said, well, of course I'm not getting paid to do it, but it's, it's like, uh, you know, it's one of those things, man. It's, it's, you know, you want to be there in the moment. So you're going to those just out of a, a, a drive? Is it is it a adrenaline rush? Is it a need to be there? What's your reason? Because you mentioned Kenton soundbite. I, that... I don't know. I, Go ahead. <laughs> I think I think it's like you want to have a sense that like you know you you mean something. I guess I don't know. It's like you know you're you're in it and like you know I see all these protests that go on and oh, like now and everything and like you don't just want to be in there protesting with them and stuff like that. You want to do something more. I think it's one of those things where you just kind of want to. You know, you ask yourself, what can I contribute to this? What can I do for this? You know, so with, with the Hurricane Sandy thing, it's like, well, if I have a lens and I have the capacity to tell the way I was telling it, maybe that's what I can give back. Maybe that's, you know, and, and I'll do that from time to time. Like, you know, whenever my family reunions or anything like that, I'll have the camera with me and I'll say, okay, well, this is something that I could kind of do. I can give this back to my family. It's something they can look back on and be like, oh, remember that day? Um, I think that's really what it is, man. It's like a way to like, you know, I've I've been privileged enough to be able to like, kind of, you know, have a sense of like, where to be and when to be there. Mm. And it's just kind of, I don't know, you know, I, I like when people are able to like crowd around something that you created and they watch it and it resonates with them. That's awesome. Is that something you think you learned or, or, or developed or is that something you think you've always had? I mean... I think that's one of those things where, you know, it's just storytelling, ultimately. Like, you know, my dad was always, you know, the guy that could work the room, you know, the guy who would tell the stories and people would just listen. I mean, that's how it used to be, too, you know, in the old days. I mean, you know, people would crowd around the storytellers and they'd tell the, you know, the old folk tales and stuff. I think that's what it is. It's the modern-day version of that. And, you know, we live in a time where everybody can now tell a story because everybody has access to a camera and everybody has access to, you know, editing software. You know, the question is, like, what kind of story are you telling and are you telling it right? And I think that's one of those things that it's just kind of nurtured after, you know, for me, 27 years. You know, I've, I've nurtured it from when I was a little kid to, to now. And even as next year, I'll probably learn a little more in the year after. I think, you know, you just kind of, those sensibilities, I think you're just kind of, I wouldn't say born with, but it's it just like experience just kind of, allows you, like, I'll give you an example. That Hurricane Sandy documentary, had it been two years earlier, three years earlier, I probably would have done it the same way. Mm. So, And if I were to do it today, if I were to do it today, I probably would do it differently also. Right. Interesting. That being said, I mean, you've got a number of of awards for your work, uh, Emmys and Pro Max. Do you have a story that you're most proud of? 
I'm sorry, repeat that again. Do I have a, a what that I'm most proud of? Do you have a story, a story? or a project that yeah, that you're most proud of? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the short film that, that I did with, uh, with Matt uh, three years ago, The Earth, The Way I Left It, that's the one that to this day, you know, I'm, I'm still very proud of it because, you know, what we were able to accomplish with that, I mean, I did the fundraising by myself. By myself. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure I lost a ton of Facebook friends uh, <laughs> through that process. Uh, I annoyed anybody you could think of to try to raise this money. I raised $11,000 from like the ground up. And then, you know, it was pretty much a group of pals that put this thing together. I mean, at one point we were in the car driving to New Jersey, which is the location where we were going to film this thing. And we said to each other, guys, if we can pull this off, I think we can do anything. Because it was the most extreme shoot that you could ever possibly ask for. It was kids. It was, you know, a dwarf actor. We had a, you know, a space suit made for him. A spacesuit made for a child. We had dogs. We had fake snow, like literally three tons of like polymer salt that was going to be turned into snow. Uh, we had face shifts. We had, you know, every, every, we had film. We shot on, you know, super eight millimeter film. Pretty much everything you could ask for that you don't want to deal with, we dealt with. But we dealt with it because we chose to deal with it. So after that, after we were done with that production, I remember it felt like, you know, it felt like we had gone to war. It felt like, man, you know, I was exhausted. Everybody was exhausted. We couldn't believe we pulled it off. And and the fulfillment that we got from, you know, the first film festival we premiered at was the Woodstock Film Festival. And we won the film festival. And it was not expected. We didn't know anybody at the festival. Um, we didn't even get invited to, you know, the award ceremony at all. We just decided to, to crash it. And it just so <laughs> we were in the... It, Seriously, we, we crashed it. We were in the back. We're we're in the back row with the videographer who was like, you know, filming the entire event. And then he told us, he's like, "Man, that's awesome. You guys, you guys rock." That's awesome. You know, we were like hanging. We were hanging out with that guy, <laughs> and we won. And uh, it was well, probably the greatest, the greatest moment I think. So, and after that, that uh, film got a lot of recognition from a lot of other film festivals, right? Right. Yeah. So with that, we went to. Uh, so we premiered at Woodstock. We took it to the National Film Festival. We took it to the USA Film Fest in Dallas. Um, we took it to, man, um, we had it premiere on Xfinity Comcast as an on-demand piece. Um, it went to the Kotcher Film Series here in New York, where it actually won the award for Best Short Film. Uh, we took it to a bunch of festivals. It, it, it did a, it was a pretty healthy round of festivals. And, you know, Nashville and USA Film Festival, they're also, you know, uh, Academy Award uh, affiliated. So that was really cool to just be a part of that group. That's fantastic. Now, let's dive into this a little bit here because you created this. What year was that again? Uh, again? What year was that again that you started working on this? Even going back to the, the ground stages, fundraising and whatnot. Okay, so the idea came about in 2011. Uh, the production didn't happen until 2012, going into 2013. Sorry, no, the production happened in 2013, March of 2013. Okay, so when, um, you're, when you're raising funds for this, I mean, there's no Kickstarter yet at this time. There's no Indiegogo or right. anything like that, right? Right. Uh, well, we didn't have it started yet. What we ended up using was Rocket Hub um, because a year prior, I was working on a TV pilot with those guys, and they said, hey, if you ever need to, you know, some, some, some help in raising money, use our website. And Rocket Hub is pretty much another crowdfunding website. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, so I used that crowdfunding website. Uh, I had 60 days to raise the money. It was around November, December of 2012. So it was Christmas time. Mm. And it was just every day, like every hour, who's online right now? Who can I talk to? Who can I? And, you know, I wasn't really asking people for, for money. It was more, you know, asking them if they would help me kind of write the story and tell the story. You know, it was all about, you know, this is the next thing I want to do with my life. If you guys can help me do this, I'd really appreciate it. Wow. Which is a nice way of saying, hey, can you give me money? But it was really, you know, sincere. It was sincere. You know, it was from the heart. How hard was that for you? I mean, being your own salesman in that sense. Did you feel like a salesman? Yeah, of course, man. I mean, you always, you always have to be, look, I mean... Nobody knows how to market yourself, and only only you do. You know, like nobody knows you better than you. And I mean, it was, but at the same time, like everybody who donated, you know, I know all those people on a first name basis. You mm -hmm. know, it's not like there were no random strangers. Every single dollar that was connected 
you know, had a handshake and a thank you. I mean, I can tell you everybody that donated. So it was, nobody was anonymous. There was none of that stuff. It was, you know, so that also gives you a little sense of gratitude, but at the same time, it gives you pressure because you know that if you don't deliver, these people are going to start to ask, hey, what, what was up with that $20 I gave right. you? Did you ever do that thing? Hmm. Um, and I actually had one, uh, one professor, one of my old teachers, uh, comment on that. She said, look, I normally don't give uh, people any money on these Kickstarter things because they don't do anything with them, but I've personally seen you get it done. So here's $25. Wow. And that, you know, that just drove me to really, you know, make it happen. That's fantastic. Looking back on that, anything, anything else that, anything else that came out of that there that um, you you specifically learned from going through that process? Uh, you know, I think the best thing that came out of that was the fact that uh, me and Matt Forvisay, our writing was so, so in sync and our directing was so in sync that it kind of just made me realize that I don't have to do this all by myself. I can actually do this with a group of people that have the same kind of sensibility. Because up until that point, you know, I was doing everything alone. I was doing my writing alone, my directing alone. And it really was kind of a, a nice moment where we were like, man, look what we just did. I can't believe we just wrote this awesome script. This is before we even had anything filmed. I mean, you know, we're actually trying to submit the screenplay to a bunch of, you know, screenplay uh, festivals as well. Because what we were able to do, we were really proud of it, you know. And, and it's really hard to to write with someone else. It's really hard to write with somebody else, especially when, you know, the way you write is a little bit different than, you know, how you'd expect certain things. You know, I try not to write dialogue, you know, at all. And, and cause I don't really know how people talk, right. you know, and it's, so it was, that's one of the greatest things that came out of this is like, we proved how well we can work and it's, you know, it's carried on through now. You know, the last national commercial that I did was we did it together. We co-wrote it. We co-directed it, co-produced it. Uh, the last, the commercial before that, same thing. What was that for so the that last was, commercial? So that was for a, uh, Coldies Cold Rem, Coldies Cold Remedy. It's a, uh, Cold Remedy brand, their throat lozenges. And we did, uh, basically a whole national campaign that is a very memorable campaign that I think is going to really help them to reach, you know, the millennial audience, which up until this point, they've only been reaching females 55 and above. Hmm. So with what we've done, which, you know, that stuff is also, it's public now. So if you just, you know, Google Coldy's ad or Coldy's, you know, commercial, you'll see it. Or go to JessBenia.com. So or you can go there, too. Right. <laughs> and, of so, course, we'll put up yeah. everything on BibMedia.tv, so with, along with the podcast notes when this is all up there for everyone as well. So, Jeff, listen, the, the resume can't get much better than it already is. What's next on the list for you? Uh, I mean, I don't know. It's one of those things where it's like a, it's like it's like a day by day thing, you know. Like, look, my birthday was yesterday, Happy and every time I, hey, thank you. But <laughs> but my my point with saying that my birthday was yesterday, other than the you know, hey, it's my birthday, was the fact that that's always like that's always the uh, the checkpoint for me. That's always the day when I either have a nervous breakdown or I have a big smile on my face because I always ask myself, okay, this year between the age of twenty six and twenty seven, what did I pull off? Was it enough? Was it not enough? And, and you know, it's, it, that's always a struggle. It's like, okay, so then what's going to happen this next year? So, you know, I have no idea, man. I mean, look, I, I, this year I was able to land in this production company, be their creative director. I touched four national commercials, which I hadn't done yet. Um, I'm, you know, able to do more things that I love. I have a feature film that I was the writer on that Michael Chick was narrated that's going to be out of theaters hopefully real soon. Um, so... My plan is to just kind of keep creating, no matter what it is. Uh, if it's a feature film, if it's another short film, if it's another commercial, I mean, you know, I won't know until it's happening. That's awesome. Let's talk a little bit about New Buzz here. Um, yeah. So New Buzz is, I mean, you guys do everything. You create. That is, seems to be the overlying sentiment here. But there's also a, a distribution factor to this. Can you talk a little bit about where new buzz content is distributed the stuff that you guys create and distribute yourselves and the kind of idea behind that. Right. So new buzz TV is actually, um, so it's an OTT network. So it, right now it currently lives on, uh, you know, uh, Roku set top boxes. I'm sorry. And o o OPP you said? OTT. Yeah. OTT. So over the top and over the top network. So it's kind of like, you know, you know, Apple TV, they have those channels like, uh, glamour has one, which is uh, called the scene or, 
you know, BBC America has them, CBS has them. Yep. It's, it's the apps that you can find on the little uh, media player boxes. So right now, New Buzz TV is on Roku boxes. It's on Vizio TVs, on smart TVs, on some Samsung TVs. Uh, we're looking that at the end of the year to have it on Apple TV and, and Amazon Fire. And so a lot of the stuff that we've curated, some of the content on there is, you know, comedy, lifestyle, um, you know, health, uh, just a uh, whole variety. And, you know, currently it's uh, in about 80 million homes. I think that's where the numbers are. Um, but don't quote me on that because I could be off by like a couple. But um, And we're looking to, you know, get more subscribers for it. We have more content coming for it. So, um, you know, in this next year, we have uh, some of our feature films going to be on it. We're going to curate a lot of short-form content. <laughs> it's really a, a place where you can go and kind of cut out the middle mix. You know, it's all about if you can create good content, you can put it right here. And you don't have to worry about is it selling, is it not selling. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, if you got good, good stuff, we'll take it and we'll put it on there and we'll, and we'll show it, you know. And so it, that's kind of where it is right now. And it's really growing. It's growing fast. So you're, you're becoming basically a, a gallery channel for great creators. You're curating some of the best work out there. Is that right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And on top of that, we are also internally going to be creating content that's solely going to live on New Buzz TV. That's Talk- our goal for this next year. Talk to me a little bit about the theory behind that model and foregoing the cable networks or the traditional distribution models. Uh, well, the formerly traditional distribution models, because what you're doing is becoming a lot more common. Yes. So, you know, that's the, that's the thing is like right now, you know, this is kind of that era where people are cutting their, their uh, cords a little more and, you know, less, Less people are watching traditional cable, more people are just watching things on Hulu, Netflix, and these subscribed things. So, so what we're trying to do is say, hey, look, you know, why don't you just go to a place where you find you get to watch what you want and where you want to watch it? You know, uh, you watch it on a tablet while you're sleeping in bed, or you can watch it on your laptop while you order food, or you know, because um, it is changing, behavior is changing, and you know, I'm I'm a millennial myself, and I consume content. Yeah, I do have cable, but. I consume content on my Apple TV. I watch it on my phone, uh, on my commute, you know. So those behaviors are changing, and, you know, we're looking to kind of ride that wave and and let people realize that, you know, if you want to, you know, see whatever you want to see, you can see it here. That's fantastic. And when it comes to this, I I guess this question then follows. So then where do you see the broadcast industry and specifically as it pertains to your role and, and companies like NBTV in the next, say five to 10 years. I mean, you know, that's a tough one because, you know, a lot of it has to do with dollars. A lot of it has to do with advertisers, you know, a lot of it. Yeah. That's why you have like some great shows that get canceled because they don't get enough ratings. And yet they go back over to Netflix or Hulu because they still have a cult following and millions of people will watch it. Uh, you know, I think, Daredevil was the show that Netflix had out last year that that gave them the you know the most viewership they've ever had, and they've got those numbers. And Netflix has never given out their numbers, so I think we're going to start seeing more numbers be dished out by some of these you know by Hulu and all these you know third party apps like what CBS is doing now and what HBO is doing now, where you can just subscribe for fifteen bucks a month and just get their stuff. But I think ultimately it's going to be I think it comes down to storytelling again. I think you know. What you want to watch, you'll figure out where to watch it if it's worth watching. Mm. You know, if, if, if I want to see this show or this episode or if I want to see this news network or I want to see this specific host, I'll figure out where they are and I'll find it. Whether it's on a bootleg website or it's, you know, actually on a TV channel, if I have to tune in and watch it every Sunday at 6, if I have to, you know, go to my friend's house every Monday night and watch it off of his laptop, I think it's pretty much going to be now where the consumer dictates more than the actual uh, – you know, distributors dictate. Right. There's, and that's probably going to, that's going to change everything. There's somebody willing to serve that niche, whatever you're looking for, because there's so many options out there, somebody is going to provide the content that you want to see. The trick is yeah. getting that to that audience in there when they want it. So, um, yeah, re- really and, I mean, I, I think, you know, and then with respect to the, you know, the broadcast stuff, that's why I think local, I think local news is still going to be fine because, there's, it's a generational thing. I think an older generation really enjoys – like, local news is one of those things where, um, you know, it's like it's a reflection of where you live, you know, and I don't think that's going to change. Where you consume it from, that might change a little bit, but I don't think that's going to go anywhere uh, ever because mm-hmm. that's like, you know, that's 
that's your direct commentary on your neighborhood. That's, you know, uh, but as far as like, you know, other things from broadcast news to just, you know, I think that is already changing, you know, and, you know, that's why you have, you know, CNN struggling right now a little bit, but then you have, you know, uh, Fox News and MSNBC changing their strategies on how they approach their niche markets. And, you know, it's, you're seeing that behavior and you're seeing them shifting the way they, they advertise and who they advertise to. And, you know, it's, it's really a nice little, uh, time to be in television and in media. It really is. That's awesome. How do you see social media playing a role in all this? I mean, you know, as much as I hate hearing people talk about how many followers this person has or that person has, I mean, I guess it is playing a role. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, you know, I've dealt with agencies that say, you know, I don't know if that on-screen talent works because they don't have too many followers. I'm just like, yeah, but I don't think that matters. But I guess, I mean, I I think it, it does. I mean, but at the same time, it's like, what does that really mean? You know, I mean, just because you have 3 million followers, does that mean you have a level of importance? You know, it's like, does, does it mean that, you know, it doesn't mean they're all watching. It, it just doesn't mean like, you know, it's like, what kind of responsibility does that, you know, so you have journalists who are on TV who have millions of people watch them and they know that they have a responsibility because there's all these eyes on them. But then you have these people, you know, who, who come out from, you know, like these Vine YouTube stars, they get the, all these subscribers. It's like, you know, I don't know. It's, it's one of those things that I can't really understand how it works and how people gravitate towards a certain person on a certain channel or a certain, you know. It's, it's a really weird thing going on right now. It's really interesting. And I, I can't really speak too much, too much about it, man. I mean, you know. Yeah. And, and those conversations. I think I, Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think it's, it's a generational thing, you know. Um, I really think that's what it is. I think it's like, you know, more and more people are, are consuming their stuff from these YouTube superstars than, you know, anything else. And I just think it's a generational thing, and we'll see what happens with the next generation. Interesting, for sure. And, you know, you, you talk about storytelling. You mentioned that earlier. And when it comes to the YouTube thing, one thing that I've been noticing is that the the content or the, the, the production quality uh, when it comes to that YouTube seems to be so unimportant when it comes to you, the number of followers that somebody has and storytelling seems to be king, uh, yeah. along that, well, that venue. That, that, that's one thing. Yeah. I agree on. It doesn't matter, you know, what you shoot on, how it looks. You tell a good story, you know, people tend to gravitate to it. That's, that's why it always just comes down to story. You know, yeah. I mean, you have some of the, the worst looking things that could just resonate with people. All right. Jeff, I, I want to throw a couple rapid fire here at you, and then uh, we'll, we'll let you go. I appreciate all the time, obviously, here. Um, yeah. If, if you were giving advice to somebody looking to break into this business now, what, what advice would you give them or any good advice you've gotten along the way that stuck with you and has proven to be valuable? Uh, I would say, you know, don't, don't get discouraged uh, by all the people that are going to say no to you. And... Uh, just weasel your way into things, you know, I and mean, that's what I did, you know, just, just like have overwhelming confidence and pretend like you know what you're doing. And eventually you will know what you're doing. Do you have an example of how you weaseled your way into something that you can <laughs> share with us? Uh, yeah, I can actually. Um, one of the first gigs I did out here was I was uh, working for Optimum production. Uh, they're based downtown. They do a lot of reality and a lot of like discovery channel stuff. And one of their lead editors was there. And I remember I started to, pay attention to his routine, what time he was leaving. And one day he left and I followed him into the elevator. I was there with him in the elevator. And I kind of said, Hey man, Hey, how are you? My name's Jeff. Nice to meet you. And we kept the conversation going. And then I just kept following him to the train. And I remember we were talking on the way to the train. He asked me, Hey man, uh, you know, what, what trainer are you taking? I'm taking the R. I said, yeah, man, me too. I'm taking the R also. Which was not true. I was taking the seven all the way back to uh, Flushing Queens. <laughs> so you're going towards so Bay Ridge the... at that point, or are you going towards Queens? Yeah, no, I, w- I was going towards Bay Ridge. So Opposite direction. I get on... <laughs> yeah. So I get on the train with this guy. We keep talking. We keep talking, and I'm just like, he's like, so you know, what kind of stuff have you done? And I start to say, well, I did this, I did that, I did this. Some of them, you know, I embellished a little bit, but enough that you know, it's credible. Uh, if you were to like look into it. And uh, at the end, he's like, yeah, man, do you, do, you have a, do you have a card or anything? I'd like to see your reel. You know, I might have something that, you know, my wife is working on to throw your way. I said, yeah, here you go, man. And then I waited for him to get off at his stop. 
And then I went to the next stop, got off, got on the reverse train, and then went all the way back home. It took me two hours to get home. And how good did that train ride back feel? Oh, it felt great because I felt like I was able to, like, finally get somebody to have their eyes, you know, on, on my reel, which was, you know, coming out of school. I, I mean, I'd only been in New York two months, you know, so I still hadn't really done much work. And, uh, you know, and I got a gig out of that, which is really cool. I got a gig for Fashion Week, and a lot of other projects came out of that. And that's just, like, one of the many stories, you know, like, that I did while I was out here. It was just kind of one of those things where you just kind of have to figure it out and figure out, okay, if I do this, I'm sure that, you know, nobody's going to question me, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. So, you know, one of the things, it's, it's fake it till you make it. Uh, I don't know if you've heard, but I encourage you to go listen to it if you haven't. Neil Gaiman had a uh, commencement speech. He's an uh, author, wrote the comic Sandman, and if, if you're familiar or not. But either way, yeah, during his, okay, so during his, that commencement speech, Make Good Art, he talks about how getting his first jobs, he lied about every paper or periodical or yeah. publication that he had written for, and then he made it a career goal to write for those uh, publications during the course of his career so he could say he wasn't lying, he was just chronologically challenged is the term he uses there. So, you know, yeah. that was a different time then. The internet wasn't what it was, so they couldn't just go look it up. You mentioned you embellished at the time. But once you get the job... No, but I mean, I mean, I did the same thing. I mean, I did the same thing even on my first actual staff job that I had working at Pix11. I think I can tell the story now because, you know, <laughs> it's been a couple of years, but, you know, I was... Uh, going to do a print campaign for the Pix 11 newscast that was going to be on all the subway trains and everything and i remember saying yeah why don't you just let me i'll photograph it i got this great idea uh and i remember my boss said so you've done this before right yeah, yeah no, i've done this plenty of times man it's uh you, you know, lied you know? <laughs> and, and and i remember staying up every night a week going into the shoot being awake every night like oh my god like it's gonna fall apart this is not gonna work out it's just not gonna happen i just couldn't sleep and then, you know, but, but, but you know what that did though, because I was so nervous because I didn't really know what I was doing, but I did, it made me really, really spend a lot of time getting myself prepared so that once I got on set, I was so focused and I had all the answers and I knew what I was doing. Which resulted in one so of that, the best that, campaigns that, fear, that we've seen. And, and then that campaign ended up being on all the subways. It was yes. like, you know, they talked about it on ad week. They talked about it on, on, uh, on, in the New York times. Which was great because the feedback was, I don't know what this is, which is the greatest feedback you could get when somebody's looking at your photo. You know? <laughs> Jeff, let me like, ask I you something. I have no idea, you know, what this guy's trying to say with this. Let me ask you something. Technology wise, anything that we should be looking out for right now? What's new to you? What's hot to you? What do you recommend out there? Uh, I mean, virtual reality seems to be taking a big. I don't know. I don't know what it is, man, but virtual reality is really. I actually tested out the. the I think it was Samsung Gear VR. I, I put one of these things on, man, and, like, it was a tie-in to, I think it was a tie to uh, Jurassic World, what it was, to just kind of bring it back around. Um, so I put this thing on, man, and in front of me was, like, this brontosaurus just sitting there. And so I turn around, look behind me, and there's this forest behind me, there's a jeep behind me, and I just watched this creature kind of come up to my face. It's kind of, like, sniffed me out to figure out, like, what I am. And yes. I remember taking the glasses off. I remember taking the glasses off. I'm like, whoa, this is, I just, this was crazy. I just felt like I was somewhere else. Wow. And once I, I experienced that, I was like, I think this is going to be something. I don't know what it is because I don't know if you can actually translate narrative storytelling or anything else into that. But that experience is really cool, man. And, but it's also really scary because I was also in a room with five other people. Mm. So for about two minutes, I wasn't in a room with five other people, but I was in a room with five other people, you know? So that was kind of eerie. So you're just moving, you're, you're, you've got this headset on and you're moving around a room that has other people in it that probably has TVs and people staring at you and you're seeing this brontosaurus. Something else. Wow. Yep. That's incredible. Yeah, now, it did was, it look like and, a CGI and, dinosaur or like original uh, yeah, Jurassic yeah, Park? Of <laughs> no, it was it was clearly you know something that looked like a cartoon, but it was still cool, man, because it's a dinosaur. Well, that that's scary. I mean, you think about the potential that that could have. Heck, I mean, everybody wow. plays Call of Duty now. If you're in a in a war zone like right. that, and that's going on around you, yeah, no, that that's what was really eerie. And you know, and uh, Justin, who I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, uh, Justin Simpson, he has actually shot some some VR stuff and. You know, it's really interesting because 
it, you're talking about like 16 to 30 cameras all mounted on this rig. And, you know, we did a music video for MTV Studios about, I'd say, six months back where uh, the director wanted to use that same technology. And so he did this little, like, 360, um, kind of like this 360 thing, which isn't virtual reality. It's a different thing, but it uses the same cameras to shoot it. And the whole music video, uh, if I had the name of the music video, man, you could look it up right now because it's really cool. But he pulled it off. It was just this band, and the whole camera's rotating in 360 the entire time. Wow, that's cool. Is that like that GoPro ball where they've got all those cameras? Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly what it is, yeah. Really cool. Yeah, we'll definitely put the link up so you guys uh, can check that out, and we'll try and find that uh, music video as well. Um, yeah, I, if, I, if I can figure out what the artist is now, I was, you know, I, I just can't, I can't think of it right now. We'll get it by the time we post yeah, it. Yeah, for the sure. Podcast. Uh, and when it comes when it comes to editing and 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 software, uh, any any softwares that you are using, or how do you feel about Final Cut Ten or X, whatever mm. we're calling mm. it? Oh uh, no, no, mm. Final, Final Cut, <laughs> nobody, no, nobody's touching that anymore. Everything I do is Premiere Pro. I think everybody in the industry is now doing Premiere Pro. I mean, uh, I transitioned to that a year and a half ago. Uh, Final Cut X just kind of everybody just kind of shunned it and said, "Not for me." Um, I don't know anybody that I've worked with that is using Final Cut X. And uh, to be honest, very few are using Avid. And zero are using Final Cut X. Um, so Final Cut X became more of a thing for, uh, you know, um, for consumers. It was more like, a, you know, iMovie Pro than an actual editing software. And so, you know, Premiere Pro, we've been using it. I, I use it for everything. Everybody that I've ever worked on a job with is using it. Um, it seems like, you know, I think what really did it for everybody was once uh, David Fincher did uh, Gone Girl. That was the first feature film edited on Premiere Pro. Mm. I think that's what made people make the transition. Because, um, you know, they, they saw a professional movie get done on Premiere Pro. Are you, so that was kind of like... Yeah. I, I know uh, for, for Final Cut, they made a big thing. What was that Will Smith movie um, where he's a con artist? <laughs> Oh. Uh, focus. Focus. Yeah, they made. I think that one was was um, cut on Final Cut X, and they were trying to uh, show that it could be done. You know, it could be done yeah, uh, on a feature film as well. Let me ask you: are, are people still using Final Cut Seven out there? The people who were are on Premiere now. Okay. So I'd say for about three years after Final Cut Seven, people were still using it. But like I said, I haven't bumped into anybody that uses that anymore. And Apple stopped supporting at least, it. Right? At least, in, in, yeah, they stopped supporting. At least in my experience. You know, um, you know, Premiere just seems to be quicker. You know, you just don't need to transcode anymore. You don't need to convert files. You just drop it in and you push it out. Gotcha. And we had talked a little bit about the uh, impact of moving to these um, OTT uh, type distribution channels here. What do you think that's going to mean for the the creative person out there who's creating their own content? I mean, are they still going to go through traditional? Uh, studios to get that work on the air, or are they going to just put it up on YouTube and then somebody like New Buzz TV is going to come find them? I mean, look, man, the perfect example is, you know, I'm ta- I-, I talked to you about two films today, right? talked to you about the Hurricane Sandy documentary that I did, and I talked to you about Earth the Way I Left It. Earth the Way I Left It was done with the traditional route of going to film festivals, getting recognized, submitting cover letters, et cetera, et cetera, showing it to studios. Uh, the Hurricane Sandy documentary was done in the way of, let me just grab a camera, I'll just go shoot, I'll put it on Vimeo, I'll let people consume it right right, right now. So that explains to you, you know, it's like both, both of those mediums are still going to be, you know, it's just all about how you're telling your story and where you're, you know, who you're trying to, you know, it's changing. And, and the, those two pieces that I did was, you know, yeah. the exact um, example of that. Awesome. You know, I never thought, like, I, I, reached more, I, I reached more viewers on Vimeo than I did just going to festival. That's awesome. Definitely uh, a land of opportunity out there, no matter what track you want to take right now. Listen, Jeff, but that's it. go ahead. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you no, no I was saying that the danger, though, is also that now because everybody has a camera, now anybody can do something. So now you have to be even better than, you know, than everybody else because now it's so oversaturated. You also need somebody to sort through all the junk to find it and kind of exactly. point you in that direction. You need a, a trail guide, uh, Sacagawea, right? She led Lewis and Clark across yeah. America. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, that's where, and that's where the people have – that's where you have to stand out a little more now because now the competition is so so stiff, you know? Yeah. 
Well, Jeff, listen, thank you so much for giving us your time uh, tonight. We really, really appreciate it, as always. Yeah. Um, where can people find you on uh, on the social media, if you want to use it, if you want to give out your contact, or just on the interwebs, if they want to reach out? Yeah, I mean, I you know, Twitter Twitter's the uh, one that I use uh, for updates. Uh, that's just, the handle's at Jeff Benilla. That's just my first and last name. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, then, and then just the website that I have. Those are pretty much the only two channels that I use for like communication. And that's uh, jeffpania.com, correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Awesome, Jeff. Thanks so much for being with Keep us. Keep putting out course. great work, man. Keep putting out great work. Yeah, yep. thanks, guys. No, I appreciate it. And we'll put everything that we talked about here up on our podcast notes. That's over at bibmedia.tv. Again, Jeff Pania, check his work out, man. Thanks so much for being with us today. As always, this is broadcasting in black and white. Brought to you by. Bib Media, I'm Joe Masiri. I'm Kenton Young. Believe the hype, guys. Take it easy. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening again here to Broadcasting in Black and White. As always, you can check out the show notes over on our website. That's bibmedia.tv, B-I-B for Born in Brooklyn, media.tv. We had a couple people who were going to the .com. One more time, bibmedia.tv. And there we will curate everything you heard from the podcast so you don't have to go searching for it on the internet, everything that Jeff talked about. And as always, if there's somebody you want to hear from, please let us know. You can reach us on Twitter, that's at bibmedia, on Instagram, bibmedia, and you can give us a shout over at Facebook as well. And if you liked what you heard on today's podcast, please subscribe on iTunes. We really do appreciate all of those subscriptions. But until next time, everybody, this is Broadcasting in Black and White, brought to you by Bib Media. Born in Brooklyn, believe the hype. Thanks, guys.